Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. 20th Century Studios presents Vacation Friends 2, now streaming only on Hulu. Look at us all together again. We just wanted to give you guys a real honeymoon. Shut now streaming. Dad! He was just released from jail. Where can I get a drink around here? Back on vacation. This place is nice. It's drug lord nice. I'm sorry, drug lord nice? With more baggage. Ever since he showed up, he turned this relaxing vacation into total chaos. Who does that? Vacation Friends 2. Rated R. Now streaming. Only on Hulu. Welcome to another Wagon Wheel Chat. I'm Jared Kimber. I think it's important to say that because I think some weeks I forget to do that. If you're listening to us live now on a green room, please line up any questions you have. If you're not aware about how Spotify green room works and being that Spotify green room don't have a cricket specialist facility, neither are they. But essentially it's an app that you can download and you can uh, listen to podcasts as they're live recorded or sometimes just general chats as they're not even being recorded. In this case, we record them live. Big thanks to everyone at Patreon who have been sending in questions. If you want to support us at Patreon, please do. I've just found out very recently that a lot more Indian people are having trouble with Patreon. So we'll be starting a buy me a coffee version of Patreon as well coming up. But big shout out to everyone who does uh, follow us on Patreon and who does do that. Big shout out to Manscaped as well. Manscaped have got their lawnmower 4.0. I don't know if you know, but I actually was once a professional gardener, so I know a lot about lawnmowers, and this is the best lawnmower I've ever used on my testicles. If you want a free worldwide shipping and 20% off, put in code REDINCA, which is the name of this podcast, and you can get 20% off free worldwide shipping anywhere you want, and your balls will thank you, is uh, what they say in the ad. And big thanks to Bodyline t-shirts for sending us some, some t-shirts as well we will start with the patreon questions as if you're a patreon member you get to ask questions first on these little chats i'll try and get through them all although wow there's a lot <laughs> let's have a look christopher hart says an early thought from the world cup is that among associate teams the lower ranked test nations is the standard of bowling is better than the batting i'm guessing that it's easier for bowls to transfer their skills from other formats and non-franchise ah so this is an interesting one. It's, it's something that we talk about a lot. Generally, that's not the case, right? Generally, when teams come to test cricket, they really struggle because they can't take 20 wickets. What happens in T20 cricket, I think specifically, is that perhaps certain skills and perhaps certain athleticism is rewarded more. So if you go through the history of test cricket, fast bowlers generally don't dominate. The bowlers who dominate most are 
maybe faster bowlers, but with specific skills or, you know, very, very highly skilled bowlers who can do a lot of different things. So you've got to be very lucky to be like Pakistan and start with Fazal Mahmood or, I mean, even the West Indies struggled a little bit with, you know, Leary Constantine being one of their better bowlers. India struggled. Uh, you can go right through it. You know, Sri Lanka struggled until they found Murali, right? I think in T20, in some ways, you're looking for probably slightly better athletes um, because you're looking for fast twitch muscle pe- people, which is a natural sort of bowling. Um, or you're looking for someone who can um, who has a quirk, whether it be mystery spin, whether it be they can spin the ball both ways, all these sorts of things. And then on top of all that, in the old days, cricket was government run. And these days, cricket is run by a burgeoning free economy, if you will, free market, um, sorry, I should say. And uh, I think players are like, if you're if you're a young player from Scotland, for instance, or Papua New Guinea, and you want to play T20 cricket, there's a financial imperative for you to learn all those other skills very quickly, which has not been the case as much throughout the the history of cricket in the, in the smaller countries. So I think there's a bunch of different things at play here. Generally, though, Teams usually get better at batting first rather than bowling first. So it's quite interesting that, that you're seeing it the other way. Um, I think maybe that's something to do with T20 and being able to spoil rather than create. But yeah, we did a podcast a while back on uh, black, why there aren't many black African batters in the South African team. Um, what there's, there's racial reasons, there's class reasons, but one of this is just quite, quite obvious and you can see it through the history of cricket, which is people from poorer backgrounds usually become bowlers because you don't need the facilities to make you a bowler. You do actually need equipment and pitches and everything that is required to become a batter, whereas you can be a tape ball bowler and then go on to be an incredible test bowler. Um, and we've seen that you know, more than a few times. We've seen guys you know, climb out of the mines as fast bowlers in England and all those sorts of things, where generally the batters come from the richer places. You know, In Sri Lanka, that comes from the posh schools. In England, it comes from the posh schools, those sorts of things. It's possible in T20 cricket, everything's being scrambled because it's just a completely different format. But it's a really interesting question. Oh, that was from Christopher. Sorry, should have said his name if I didn't. If I did say your name, Christopher, then I've said it twice. Three times, maybe even now. Rex says, off the back of Scotland's wins, do you think they, maybe PNG, should stop trying to play any 50 over games and only play T20? Um, Then make an effort to play as many as they can wherever, whenever. No, I can see what you're saying there, Rex. Um, And look, look, Scotland have not, prioritized red ball cricket at all i'm not sure if they're the first team to really do that in associate cricket i think other teams have certainly done it maybe scotland have been slightly more successful with it i think that i'm going to go back to a you know really interesting one i heard i think it was kyron pollard Dwayne bravo perhaps sunil narine were at a barbecue or, or a dinner um at pollard's house maybe um and uh nicholas a young nicholas Piran was there and he said to the guys can you make it without playing red ball cricket and white and 50 over cricket? You know, can you develop yourself as a cricketer essentially? And they said, yes, but it's very hard. I think it's exactly the same. If you're looking at these Scottish players or these PNG players, there are skills that they will learn more often in one day cricket and even red ball cricket that they still have to develop. I think in order to be top level T20 players, I think there are certain players at certain ages where that doesn't matter. You know, uh, where you become, you can certainly become a specialist. But I think that, you know, the problem, this, so the, the thing that the, the Trini boys were telling Puran is you can play a whole tournament and not face that many balls if you're batting, you know, at that stage he was batting around number six and number seven. 
in one day cricket, you know, you will actually get to face a few balls. Um, you know, in red ball cricket, you will have to play in conditions where the ball is completely on top. All these sorts of little things that you learn, and it's the same for bowlers as well, that you can't quite learn as much in uh, just playing in T20 cricket. So no, I think they should continue to play it. I think they should just play as much T20 as possible, but make sure that they're still playing the other formats. Um, really interesting question. Ian says, um, after pump, some people suggest that they would fail to qualify, do you think Sri Lanka could actually be in a bit better position in this World Cup, having got tuned up and built their confidence with some wins during this qualification than if they had sneaked through automatically? I think that Sri Lanka, and I said this before, in fact, weirdly, I sent this message to Mickey Arthur when he got the job. I, I remember, um, and it wasn't like, oh, I, you know, I'm a journalist, I need to talk to Mickey Arthur. I, I don't know how much Mickey Arthur knew about Sri Lankan cricket going in. For me, as a, as a GM and as an analyst, I was th thinking that Sri Lanka had incredible T20 talent. The problem with these players is that they weren't playing it enough. Um, they had a terrible local league, and that didn't really help anyone. I, I, Danajay De Silva, obviously I'm obsessed with DDS um, because he's so stylish and has incredible posture, but he's a, absolutely... There are no, very few players in the world that have his skills when it comes to T20. He can bowl you between two and four overs a game. He can bat pretty much anywhere between one and seven. Um, and he's one of the world's best fielders. Like, he's a brilliant, you know, what do they call them? Three-tool player in baseball, um, uh, which we, start, we started to use in cricket a little bit as well, that phrase. Um, there are plenty of players in Sri Lanka that certainly have those skills. Uh, and they just haven't been developed. So, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a very – and I think Mickey Arthur, that's basically what he said back to me, was he, he thought I was right, that there was a T20 team waiting to come out there, just that they haven't played. They've had a local league now. I don't think they're going to, you know, make a run at this tournament. Um, but you, you make a good point. They've had a week of proper games, um, uh, you know, and they'll have some confidence now. They're in a better situation. When you look at their best 20 players – on paper, purely on talent, sorry, not on paper, but purely as talents, there is an incredible T20 team there. It's only 2014 that they won the tournament. I know things have changed a lot, but it's not like they've never been good at T20 cricket, I suppose is my point. They've had a lot of players like, you know, Malinga and Pereira who've flown around the world, Dilshan, um, you know, they've got a lot of players who I think should have done that over the last couple of years. Guys like Dick Waller, who's, you know, sort of seen as a comical figure sometimes at cricket. It's a phenomenal T20 natural talent, you know, and there's a lot of them. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting one that you say that. But realistically, making teams qualify changes the way that you think about things. And I think it has for this Sri Lankan team. It's a really good thing. Most teams should qualify. For, you know, the host should get in and maybe, you know, the next five, uh, the five highest ranked teams from the last tournament or however they work it out. But realistically, teams should qualify. It will help teams like New Zealand and Pakistan and West Indies, Australia, Australia. It, so many times they just rock up to tournaments having not thought about the tournament. It's ridiculous. Anyway, Ramnath says, do you think captains of T20 should be allowed to use an earpiece to communicate? Um, <clears throat> no, because I think that a point of difference in our sport is the fact that the captain is unlike any other sport. Uh, I think there should be, you know, we're already seeing through the Owen Morgan, Nathan Lehman partnership and, and other people with Nathan Lehman, Molten Sultans and other teams, that there are other ways to get messages on the field. But I think I, I, I don't, as a, as a guy who likes American football as a sport, 
the first time I found out that the quarterbacks weren't making decisions, I was a little bit upset. I was like, what? But they're on the field. That should be their thing. I like a point guard who makes decisions in basketball. And, you know, I'd like a quarterback who makes their own decisions, like those two brothers whose names I've forgotten um, uh, used to do. So I think that, yeah, I think in, in that particular case, I think it's a point of difference for our sport. Um, and uh, I've got absolutely no problem with it. I think one drinks break slash timeout is absolutely fine in a T20 game. Um, I, I think you almost want the players to rest at a certain point as well because you want them, you want your fast bowlers to be charging in and you want your fielders to be doing it and you, you want your batters to be able to run as hard as they can. So I actually like the rest even from a non-strategic uh, point of view. Uh, but thank you for that, Ramnath. Uh, Gopanath says, on the Ryan's exclusion, is extreme fitness as important in T20 as tests and ODIs? It's a really good question. I don't know if we've done enough research into it. In in Narayan's particular case, there's no way of replacing him, right? So if you're trying to replace Lendl Simmons because he's not fit or um, uh, Obed McCoy or Sheldon Cottrell, right? At, at a certain point, you can, you know, you can find maybe another seamer. You can, you can find maybe another top order player in, in, in those sorts of cricketers. What you can't find is really another son on Orion because he's the only one that's ever existed. So the fitness thing with him is almost a red herring because there is no other son on Orion. But you still, uh, and I think in his particular case, he, his four overs aren't going to be a problem because of the way he bowls. You really though want, if he's bowled his four overs and he's fielded for the whole 20 overs and you still need him to be able to hit sixes later on, you don't really want him to be come out, hit one six and be exhausted and not be able to hit any others. So yes, it still definitely matters. Players are exhausted at the end of T20 games. In some ways, players have told me they get more tired with T20 tournaments than other tournaments. Fitness is definitely a major concern. It also depends on how many players you can hide in the field. Like, you know, in, in this particular case, you could make a very solid argument that maybe the best T20 team for the West Indies would involve Gale, Narine, and Raheem Cornwall. But where do you fit all three of them in the field? Does it matter? I don't know. Um, but it's a really interesting one. Uh, thanks for your question, Gopanath. Nort says, is there a dive into the data dark horse for this T20 World Cup? Uh, no, Nort, because they don't play enough T20 internationals to really be able to tell you that much. Obviously, Pakistan is the um, uh, has been an incredible team at home, um, uh, and that should translate pretty well to the UAE. Um, they're probably not one of the outright fav favorites of this tournament, but, you know, got some incredible options um, uh, for players. Um and West Indies, I suppose, if you're following the data, does, the fact that they haven't been a very successful team between World Cups doesn't really matter that much because we know they have so many players who do so many incredible things that they don't even need to pick um, Sun or Narayan. So, yeah, it's a, uh, I'm not sure that either of those are dark horses. Um, the team that I think should struggle more than others is New Zealand because I think they've they've got a particular form of T20 cricket that they've been perfecting probably looking ahead to playing in Australia and then they didn't play in Australia. Then they were thinking, well, I might still work in India. Then they didn't play in India. I don't think their form of T20 cricket, where I think at home they score over nine runs and over, um, is going to translate particularly well to the UAE. Um, but let's see. Duncan Edwards. I, oh, he's got two questions, Duncan. Duncan Edwards, uh, would you drop Warner? Would you drop Morgan? I certainly wouldn't drop Warner. Uh, I think he's in Australia's best 11 T20 players. Uh, he uh, he had a couple of runouts. I honestly think that it was a bit silly for Sunrisers to drop him unless they just wanted to move on from the season, which is a completely different thing. Um, 
I don't think you you don't drop players of his talent because uh, there aren't players of his talent around, and he was the best. You you make a very very strong argument that outside of maybe Andre Russell, he was the and maybe AB De Villiers, he was the best IPL player for five six years. Um, to drop him because he's had half a season of bad form doesn't really make any sense for me. Uh, would you drop Morgan? And Morgan's a really interesting one. I can't see how England can drop him because of who he is and his place within that team. Um, at the same time, almost ham- unless his form miraculously comes good, um, I think he failed again versus New Zealand in the warm-up game, didn't he? But unless his form comes miraculously good, I can't see how Morgan is going to be a uh, top-level talent um, in this tournament. But internationally, I don't have any problem with Owen Morgan. And he's been out of form for a long time. And a player of his talent, that either means he's done, he's finished, he'll never make another run again, or it means that, you know, he's, he, he it, it will change and he will come back to normal. Um, I've, I've, I've felt like a lot of my career, I've dealt at Owen Morgan and he's won a World Cup. So I probably wouldn't drop him either. Um, but I could see why you've asked both those questions, Duncan. Canon Ganesan says, questions on the ICC extending international status to all T20 matches. I understand it provides much needed recognition to matches involving tier ones like Scotland, Netherlands, blah, blah, blah. Um, but you get single digit scores or losses by huge um, market um, margins. I guess in other sports like football, basketball, or hockey, they have similar results. Um, we should have, uh, let, uh, I, I'm not going to read all the way to your end. I, I think it's really interesting. Um, the whole idea of diluting the quality for neutral viewers, though, is what you're sort of talking about there. Come on. Um, look, neutral viewers aren't watching those games to begin with, so it doesn't matter. Those teams are playing more internationals now because they have an official status than they were before, but they were also already playing internationals. We just didn't let them call it that. It's a ridiculous situation. Um, uh, we, we have decided what an international fixture can be officially, um, and that's stupid and idiotic. And it should never have existed. What what should have existed was a was a better structure to go. Okay, um, if if Mozambique and Uganda want to play a, a test match against each other, they can call it a test match. They can play it a test match. Remember, in the old days, anyone called anything a test match. What should have happened then is that we had different tiers for test matches: tier one, tier two, tier three. You could have exactly the same for international T20s if you wanted to do it as well. You know, when people, uh, you know, it's it's the famous one is always football. When, or I suppose you could say football or basketball. Like I think that the top basketball scorer of all time, um, Oscar, someone from Brazil. I always forget his last name. Um, and the you know the top football scorer is the guy from Iran, right? No one's saying that they're the best basketballer and the best footballer in the world. There's been a lot of hilarious basketball results, and you know, uh, having seen Sri Lanka, who I think are currently ranked 205th in the world at football, um, <clears throat> they are still representing Sri Lanka at football. They should be allowed to call it an international game. They're not very good. I've never played football, and I, I felt like even I could have, you know, got on the left back and not co- completely disgraced myself in that game. But <clears throat> realistically, I think at a certain point, we have to allow play, people to play international games. It, it's This is why it, it's th- when people say stuff like that, it's like, this is why we don't have many big teams, because we, we said that you can only play when we say you're good enough. We don't know when teams are good enough. Sri Lanka were probably good enough decades before, you know, we got them involved. And had they started playing in 1930, my guess is by 1996, they would have been a far better, more consistent team. 
It wouldn't have been a surprise and they won the World Cup by that point. Um, it took New Zealand 39 years to win their first test series, right? Uh, it took, you know, um, South Africa won, what, two test series in their first 40 years as well? Um, if you only wait for teams to come in and then you grant them status, you, you, you're creating a gentleman's club. That's not what international sports should be. So, no, I think right across the board, test ODI at T20, if two international teams are playing, they should be able to call it an international game. Then we just have tiers and divisions and all sorts of normal things that, that top-end sports do. So if you're looking at the stats right now for this tournament, you don't have to look at the, you know, Uganda versus, um, uh, who would Uganda play? <laughs> um, Denmark uh, game, right? You don't need to look at that when you're looking at your stats. You can, you can narrow it down to just teams from this World Cup. You can narrow it down to just teams from the first, you know, from the top 10 qualified um, ranked teams. There are many different things that you can do. The whole stats thing, as someone who works at stats all the time, it's complete nonsense to think that these other teams are ruining the stats. They're just not. Um, so I understand the point, but no, we should be encouraging more teams to play more international cricket. And if this does it, great. Uh, Jim Ed Rajas says, I hope this is not too inappropriate. There are t quite a few players in the women's game who are openly homosexual, <laughs> but none in the men's game that I know of. Uh, Steve Davies, uh, former Surrey and England player, and now plays for Worcester again. Does that mean the men's dressing culture is not supporting same-sex relationships? Uh, look, I think that you have to understand that women's sport is a fun, is just way different than men's sport. Women's sport, right across the board, is always been a leader in um, in uh, well, gay sports, I suppose, and men's sport has been lagging behind. You know, Martina Navratilova. Um, uh, you've got you know, um, you've got cross relationships across sport. Don't you? Is it Sue Bird and the American footballer. Uh, <laughs> uh, you've got, you know, uh, you know, you've got major relationships in women's cricket across teams, you know, um, between England and New Zealand and, and all these sorts of things. Um, you've got marriages within the women's sport. I think that for whatever reason, and there's probably great articles out there why this has happened, but I think that, you know, through women, the women who were allowed to play sport were often more masculine um, or, or d demanded to play sport were often more masculine, and there's probably a larger percentage of those who were lesbians to begin with. Um, you know, they weren't worried about getting, you know, there was a lot of women who were probably very good at sport who were straight women who were put off playing sport because it wasn't seen as being feminine or, you know, and those sorts of things. Whereas within the gay women's community, they don't, you know, they have a completely different setup. So I think that's got a large part of it. As far as the men's go, it's a, it's a really interesting thing. I, I don't know what percentage of male cricketers are gay. I don't, it's nowhere near the same percentage of what women's cricketers are gay, even if it's closet versus not in the closet. Um, there's absolutely no doubt that there are um, a high percentage of women who are gay in professional sport in general than men. But yeah, I think, I mean, cricket is conservative sport in many different ways as well. Um, and that goes across to the, the social aspects of it. So, I mean, Jim, it's a really good question. I think that I think that if every male professional athlete, but let's take this away from cricket, if every male professional athlete in the world who was gay came out at once, it would probably completely change the conversation and it would be different. But everyone's living in their own um, areas and their own um, sections and their own sport and their own nationalities. When, when Steve Davies came out, I'll put it this way, I went through and had a look and worked out that at that stage I think it was almost four 
maybe four and a half because of the weird rules in different or the weird laws in different countries, countries where he couldn't have a relationship with a man in the country he was in. Like he couldn't have taken his partner there and had sex with his partner. Um, you know, that that's part of cricket. Um, and there are there are mass, you know, there are massive problems within um, homosexuality within cricket because of things like that. So it is a very tricky, tricky situation. But I think that women's sport is just so different to men's sport that you can't really compare the two. But there's definitely a problem within male sport in general and coming out. I think that's I think that's very fair. We just had the the big story in America, didn't we? The uh, was it the uh, Raiders coach? I think. Um, who publicly on ESPN said all the very good things about having a gay athlete play for his team and then privately was the complete opposite. I think that's what a lot of gay male athletes are afraid of, that even if people say nice things to their face, that they will be treated differently. And I don't think they're wrong, sadly. And Rhubarb says, um, across the Australian women's team, there's been incidents of injuries. While injuries to some extent are reality of sport, do you think the particularly high rate of injury um, – perhaps induced from a lack of regular game time during the pandemic. Do you know anything about teams trying to reduce the likelihood of injuries? I would guess that this is something to do with uh, the women, Australian women's team being more professional. The downside of professional being a professional athlete is that you're pushing your body to the absolute limit all the time. And we don't have that. We also don't have as much great sport. Well, I'm sure I've said it before in this podcast, but we don't have much sports science on women playing cricket. The only open um, uh, study that I'm aware of was comparing men to women, which doesn't really help because we need to know more about women, not how they're different to men. Um, and, uh, and in England, I think, I, I believe are doing some studies on women bowlers at the moment. I'm not sure if it's women batters as well. Um, you know, and, you know, hopefully they'll be trying to find out things like why do women swing the ball in more than men? anecdotally at least, uh, or whether that's just something that isn't true. Um, and so my guess is that the sports science that we've had specifically for women cricketers is bad, is terrible. And the sports science for women athletes is actually nowhere near as high as it should be in general, because basically women, women's athlete, uh, you know, outside of tennis and a little bit of golf, they haven't been professional. So there was no money to invest back into women athletes in the same way. Um, so that would be, that would be a guess for me. Um, that we don't know women's bodies enough so that they get injured more. But uh, Rhubarb, really interesting question. All right. Thank you to everyone on Patreon there. There is a joke in cricket that we started protecting our testicles 100 years before we put on helmets. I'm not here to give you a history lesson on the cricket box and its invention, but this is a generally true statement. So that means as cricketers, we are more focused on protecting our downstairs than our head. And yet when so many of us shave our balls, we do it with a crude implement made for trimming a beard. Well, Manscaped are here to make sure, like the cricket box did 100 years ago, that our balls are completely looked after. Manscaped have the Lawnmower 4.0, a stunning device that trims your pubes like a delicate late cut. Well, without the actual cutting, I suppose. And I have used this, so you're going to have to trust me when I say this is a shockingly good piece of kit. And maybe this is for another time the story, but a man who has injured himself down there and had to go to hospital to get to the whole area fixed. I'm glad that there's something that feels a lot safer. Huge thanks to Manscaped for making the Lawnmower 4.0 and also for giving us a discount code. So get 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code REDINCA at manscaped.com. Come on now, 20% off, free shipping, manscaped.com, REDINCA, you get it. Thanks to the ICC regulations, you can no longer use saliva on your balls, but you can use Manscaped. Let us see if 
green room is working well. Kunal. Hey, Jared. So my question, although we are discussing T20, my question is on uh, test cricket. So, Jared, given the number of fours which we go to the third man, does it make sense to have a permanent third man even if you have four slips and you give your fastballer the rest and then just have a permanent fielder there? I mean, do you think that strategy, how will it play out? Uh, that is very interesting. I think that this falls into the trap of we don't know enough about fielding data to know how important a third man is. But what I do know is, having talked to many bowlers over the year, years, is that when you have a third man, it usually means that you have to take a player out of the ring or more likely off the leg side. When you do that, you take the stumps out of play and you bowl a wider line and batters start to leave you more. So there is direct, and I know people like Michael Holding are like, you need a third man in. But there are direct consequences from having a third man that affect bowlers' lines. According to bowlers, um, I don't know, because we've never done a study with, with the field moving around, and more so now than ever, what test bowlers are trying to do at the moment is they are trying to bowl a line that allows them to get caught behind, slash caught in the slips, LBW and bowled. If that's the case, you really need an extra player on the leg side in the ring to stop players from um, from flicking the ball to mid-wicket to square leg to get off strike um, or at least make it tougher for them to do that. So my guess is that the third man point that you made might work for certain bowlers, but what one of the reasons I think over the last whatever it may be, uh, was it now four years, that test bowlers have been dominating so much is because they're keeping the stumps in play. Batters are not being able to leave the ball as much. Uh, they're giving themselves a chance for the three main dismissals at all time. Um, and I don't think third man helps in any of those um, uh, ways. I, uh, and I, I'm willing to have some runs go through there um, if that's the case. So I think that what you really want to be able to do is keep a batter on strike for as long as possible. Um, and, and in some ways, the fours matter less than the singles do in this case. If I can get Vernon Philander to bowl six straight balls at someone, and for those six straight balls, he has the opp opportunity to get them caught behind, caught in slips, bowled, and LBW. Um, I think that is, I'm far more likely to take the wicket there than I am uh, if I've got a third man in and he thinks I need to bowl slightly more to my third man in here because I have one fewer player on the leg side. Does that make sense, Kuna? Yeah, yeah. Good perspective, Jared, yeah, so. Yeah, but if, just to add to that, until we have fielding data, we don't know, really, if 100% how to answer your question. But my guess would be that the more bowlers are bowling fuller and at the stumps, the more you want coverage on the leg side and the less you want a third man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So basically, a fielder less anywhere will hurt the overall bowling plans. That's what yeah. we're getting. Yeah. I, I don't know if you saw, I did a video, it must be almost a year and a half ago, one of the earlier videos I did, I think I did it for Crick Info, about, you know how every time someone gets an edge, and it goes past third slip and there's no third slip in. Everyone goes, oh, I should have had a third slip. And what I tried to show is the relationship between the edge and the fact that they had an extra fielder on the leg side. If you can have a really strong ring field, you can keep the pressure on the batter, which means they'll make a mistake. The minute you take a fielder out from either the offside or the leg side and put them into slip, they it's easy for them to get off strike, right? Which means you can't create the pressure that creates the edge. So what we don't have now is a way of working out the best balance of those two things, right? And your third man point fits exactly into the same thing. Yes, it would protect runs. Does it change the way that bowlers bowl? Um, which my guess is yes, because that's what bowlers are telling me. And does it change the pressure that you're you, that you can keep on the on the batter? Which also 
helps getting runs. There, there are obviously players like, you know, Raul Dravid and Kane Williamson who you may, you may need a third man to just because otherwise you can't bowl to them, right? Which, is, which I think is you know, in that particular case. But I don't think that's the case as to a normal, uh, you know, test batter. But uh, thank you very much for your question. Basil. Hi, Jerry. How you doing? What's your question? My question is, we are having this 2021 T20 World Cup five years after the last one. The last one was in 2016. Mm -hmm. So what do you think the most fundamental change that happened to T20 cricket in the last five years and uh, which team do you think have adapted to this change the most? I think probably the biggest fundamental change was the West Indies slash England change in the 2016 World Cup, which is understanding that boundaries are more important than doubles and singles. So I think that was probably the biggest change and that happened in that tournament. Uh, is when we really saw that come through. Obviously, the West Indians had been doing that, and England um, in the blast cricket had been working towards that as well. But I think that that was the tournament where we really understood that it was coming, that it was happening. So, yeah, I'd certainly say that was a huge one uh, there. So I think all the other changes since then have been, like, really small um, changes. I don't think there's anything massive. Like, we knew about leg spin. We knew about fast bowling. Like... Like, for instance, uh, 2009 World Cup, we learned about scooping really through Dilshan. I know it had been done before, Ryan Campbell and Marillier and all those sorts of guys, but Dilshan sort of taught us that. If you have a look now, we have less scooping than we've had in the last few years because of so many slower balls. Um, and batters don't like being caught, you know, third man or fine leg trying to scoop something that's um, uh, tremendously slow. So I think what the real difference is is that now that teams actually understand T20 cricket, that was not the case in 2016. I think England and uh, West Indies did. I don't think teams, as a as a general rule, in in the rest, you teams like Scotland and well, Netherlands, uh, Oman, actually really understand T20 cricket, and they're not even professional professional, although they're obviously um, at least semi professional in some cases, and yet they understand T20 cricket and they understand their way of winning in t20 cricket so i think before it was a little bit more you put a bunch of good cricketers on the on the park and i think that if you've got associate teams who've worked out this game and, and papua new guinea is another very good example of that that tells you how much smarter kind of everyone is at t20 cricket now and i think that it's not that there's anything that has changed specifically about the game it's just that all the little things like you know understanding matchups understanding uh field positions um plugging certain kinds of gaps in your batting lineup, in your bowling lineup, and all those sorts of things, understanding where players do their best work. Um, if you look at England in that in that World Cup, they had Ben Stokes as their death bowler. I think if you look at one of my pieces beforehand, I was saying what a random death bowler he was. I don't think there's any team coming into this World Cup with someone like Ben Stokes as a death bowler anymore because teams now understand that, that you can lose a game in that position because, uh, you know, everyone goes at about, well, between nine and 12 runs and over, but you have the ability with a bad death bowler to go, you know, 14, 15, 16 runs and over, uh, which is, there's a bigger, bigger differential. Does that make sense in the death than any other period uh, between a good over and a bad over? Like, a, you know, uh, there are very few bowlers that go for more than 10 runs and over at, in the middle overs, no matter how bad they are. And a very good bowler will go at six or seven runs and over. Whereas at the death, a very good bowler will go at eight or nine runs and over and a very bad bowler will go at 15 or 16. So we are learning all these little things. But I think the biggest difference with the batting was certainly we learned in, in that tournament in 2016 as international cricket. 
And I think everything else has just been the professionalization of the sport and the little things that you can learn and the role definition um, that we have learnt that uh, has come uh, along the way. But I don't think there's been a big bang between the two tournaments. I think there's been just a bunch of small bangs of teams that have uh, started to pivot before. A lot of the things we've learned about T20 cricket, we actually teams were, were using back in the very early days of T20 cricket as well, like the England days of T20 cricket. It's just that it's taken us a long time to get back towards them. You know, I've talked about this a lot, that Australia and India are so, still so obsessed with anchors and everyone batting through the innings and all this sort of nonsense that we know that realistically the, the better option is not particularly that style. And it's probably a, you know, a succession of players who have different skills, who bat at different areas and maximise their strike rate in each area. But that was something, again, that the West Indies already knew about and to a lesser extent England already knew about um, in that last World Cup. It's just that, Everyone kind of knows that that now, I think, um, is the way it's going. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. No worries. Cheers, man. BJ. Hi, Jared. Hope you're well. How are you? I'm good, too. I've listened to your Red Inca on Oman today. It was really interesting. And it seems like the difference between countries like Oman and the USA versus, say, Papua New Guinea or, you know, Argentina and stuff is just the sheer capital they might have. Like, someone just wants to invest and with government support and bring all of these infrastructure up to, to speed, have networks with schools and all of that. Is there a possibility for these kinds of associate nations to get picked up by a sort of wealthy patron and go the franchise model, right? Just someone looks at it as a market, someone looks at it purely as a revenue opportunity down the road, invests in it and just grows it over like a 10-year project and brings it up to speed players go play everywhere in leagues and they get commissions. Is that like a viable sort of path or is that completely off and, and national sports stay with the cup? Well, I mean, the USA is kind of already doing it, realistically. That's what kind of what Major League Cricket is doing um, to a certain extent. They won't be taking commissions if the players play overseas, but they're basically paying a bunch of players to be available for Major League Cricket and that will those players will then qualify for the USA national team. And so, you know, and there is... There's a relationship between Major League Cricket and the USA national team that is burgeoning, developing, and will <clears throat> only get more and more involved over the next few years. Uh, you know, the guys who run, uh, you know, uh, uh, Major League Cricket, uh, you know, from Willow TV, they are invested in American cricket being good from, an, from a financial point of view. If the USA team is better, more people will watch cricket in America where they have their Major League Cricket, right? So... All those things are, uh, are mixed and matched uh, already there. Um, look, I've, I've talked to people before who've thought about investing in players from certain regions of the world and doing what you're talking about, literally saying to them, okay, I'm going to give you this amount of money and you will make this percentage of all your uh, revenue, but I need you to be available for this particular form of cricket. Um, and then the rest of the year, I will get you in other leagues. Um, certainly talk to investors uh, and Various people have tried to work out that kind of model, less so at the international level, uh, more so at that franchise level, but it would help individual countries in the same way America has done. So, yeah, you, you could certainly see how that would work. I mean, you think about a country like Papua New Guinea, um, it's basically, you know, as I, as I talked about recently, a village who have made it to a World Cup. But I think, I think I've got this number right. 300,000 young uh, PNG kids now play cricket through the school system. They made it to the World Cup with one village, what could you do with a lot of players? Like, is there a lot of, you know, Charles Amini's 28, 29 
we know that he is a talented bat, a talented fielder, and a talented bowler, although he didn't bowl very well in this tournament. But he is all of those things. What could have happened if you found Charles Amini when he was 22 or 23 and you developed him a little bit better and you took him out of that market more often um, and got him to develop in, I think he played some club cricket in Australia, did Charles Amini? I'm trying to think that. But, you know, really fast track that, you know, get him on the, you know, get him on the um, MCC young players um, uh, situation, get him playing franchise tournaments when he's younger and all those sorts of things. Could you not make money from that? Um, and you don't have to be a Papua New Guinea fan for that. You could just be someone who wants to make money, who who goes well. If there's a bunch of young, talented players here and they're not being represented, um, you know, I've, I think I'm on the. I think I'm. I think I've contacted four agents um, over the last couple of years to try and get Charles Amini an agent, <laughs> uh, without even telling um, CJ about any of this. So, I, th- I think there's plenty of talent out there, um, and there will be. I think these sorts of things that you're talking about, whether it's directly the way that you've said it or not will happen more and more because I think there is money to be made off of players in areas like this. So, you know, if you, you look at basketball and football, you have people who basically go around communities that they know plucking out, you know, six foot eight guys or guys with incredible football skills um, and sending them to America and then taking a percentage of their, of their revenue. Um, you know, there's the maker family in, in Perth um, who is a Sudanese Australian family Um They've had one player play in the NBA. They'll probably have two or three players play in the NBA. That was all from one agent who basically, you know, plucked them out and and sent them um, to train them up in America. Um, if that's the case um, in where in America and in football, it's going to be the case in cricket as well. Would be my guess. We're just a little bit further behind because of the way that cricket has been structured so far. That's really interesting. A quick follow-up to that. Do you think there's a disadvantage if you're a more homogenous associate nation like PNG compared to say? Oman, USA, with like the immigrant nation population, they're going to have more talented players just by sheer virtue of, of that pipeline, right? Like Unmuk Chan will go to the US and there's more revenue there where it's PA, depending on tapping, you know, schools and local kids and that it's going to be a steeper curve for them. Is that a problem? No, because there's advantages in both systems. There's a huge advantage in being Nepal or Papua New Guinea in that if you get really good at cricket and it becomes the national sport, everyone's going to want to play it. And we've already seen that in Nepal and Papua New Guinea. Hopefully we'll see that over the next five or 10 years as well. They're not particularly well known for any other sports. And you then have a pipeline where you might have, you know, a small country that is absolutely obsessed with the sport. who in, in cricket, I think we've already proven with New Zealand and Australia, Sri Lanka, um, a small country completely obsessed with the sport can do very well in Ireland. Um, well, Ireland's not even that obsessed with the sport and they've still done very, really well. So no, I think that, in the USA, you're a long way away from having 300,000 obsessed cricket kids. Whereas in Papua New Guinea, we might not be as far away from that. So no, I don't think that. But I, I see what you're saying. I mean, you know, there's, if you're an investor, I suppose it depends on what you're looking at and uh, and how you go. You get more bang for your buck, I would assume, in PNG than you would in USA or Oman. You know, Uganda, Japan, there's a few countries that if you invested your money in, I think there would be a lot of good young cricket talent coming through, especially for the T20 market. Thanks. No worries. Cheers, mate. All right. Someone just asked a question in the comments. Ashreyas says, opinion on the Glazers' family interest in the IPL. Look, uh, so we've already got one team that's partially owned by American money, don't we, now, in the Rajasthan. I think there will be more American money coming into the IPL. Conversations I've had with American business owners, obviously Major League Cricket will be really interesting as well. You might get some rich Indian um, Americans, uh, rich um, Pakistani Americans, rich Bangladeshi Americans, 
coming across in the next five to 10 years. But I also think that, I think they understand that it's an untapped market. Um, and so people like the Glacier family will be involved. Obviously, we don't want the Glacier family involved because they're absolutely terrible at running everything. And the last thing we need is a bad owner. What we really need is a good American owner, um, you know, um, guys who own the Red Sox um, or something, like, you know, the Cronkies. Um, those sorts of owners are the ones that we probably want to be involved in in the IPL. Uh, you know, if if you're if you're uh, if you're uh, one of the Cronky family, um, I will happily um, uh, help you buy an IPL team um, if you need that, uh, as long as I get free Nuggets tickets. But but yeah, I think that's going to happen. I think that's going to happen naturally. I, you know, the MCC. I think Lords almost bought a team, didn't they? I think that probably some of the moneyed places from outside of the UK. Uh, sorry, from outside of India, probably made a mistake in not getting um, some money. So I think there'll be more and more overseas investment um, in those sorts of things. You might even start to see the Qatar and Saudi Arabia, you know, Emirates money coming in uh, to cricket as well um, in, in the future. But yeah, I think there will be Americans who it will be a chance. If, if you think about it, let's 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 go to the Cronkies because I know they want a little bit better. The Rams, the Nuggets, is it Arsenal they own as well. They want to be able to sell all of those teams to India as well, because there's a huge market there. So the crossover, you know, ability that they might be able to have, you know, suddenly, you know, Nikola Jokic turning up at 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 an IPL game, Um, you know, you've got Serbia, you've got America, you've got India all in this one thing that you can sell more stuff to, similar to, you know, Arsenal players and, you know, all of those sorts of things. Um, So I think it's, I think there's certainly a, it makes sense. And then just from a purely investment point of view, it makes sense because we know that IPL is only going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, if you didn't buy early on, this is the time to buy because in in a couple of years, these teams are going to cost, you know, I I was actually shocked at how little these teams were costing. Um, If I was talking to a business owner now, I would certainly be getting involved um, very, very soon um, because I really, we know this league isn't going to disappear now. So it's not like the early days where, you know, some of the some of the teams were making a bit of a punt. You know, what we're really talking about now is um, the ability to make uh, a lot of money going forward and own a share of something that will only get bigger and bigger and bigger. As India becomes more powerful in the world, as more second, third generation Indians become, you know, millionaires and billionaires in other countries, as maybe Major League Cricket takes off, maybe Japan or Brazil get good at cricket, you know, w- whatever happens... Your best pace scenario would be if you uh, if you were someone like the Cronkies or the Glaciers or um, some of those other um, you know groups who own multiple teams to buy to you know to buy um, um, someone um, in in an IPL. That's what I would be doing, and I think this is probably going to be. I could be wrong. I reckon this is a very good time because I think you still a chance of getting a good city now. Whereas as you go forward, obviously you're going to get smaller and smaller or weirder and weirder markets. I think you have a chance of getting a very good city now um, and being based somewhere. Um, but yeah, thank you for that one. Shreyas, Shreyas asked that question. All right, Jimmy, you there? Kushag. Oh, how are you doing? Uh, I, I didn't even know I clicked you, but go ahead, Kushag. I'm here now, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Firstly, how's your arm? I did my arm a couple of weeks back. and How's your arm? Uh, my arm is, well, I can bend it up and touch things. It won't straighten, which is going to be a concern if that's still the case in three weeks. Oh, sorry, three months' time. But at the moment, it's not a massive concern. And my shoulder is completely ruined from having to carry the whole thing. But, yeah, it's getting there. It's 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 going well. Uh, what's your other question, mate? Oh, yeah, okay. So 
my question is what are your thoughts on virat kohli the t20 international batsman now i place special emphasis on the word international because his international numbers are just they're out of the world because yeah this is 52 at first strike rate of 140 so do you think he is the greatest t20 international batter of all time is that the right thing to say to be honest i don't pay any attention to international numbers as a general rule because of david milan maybe is the best way of putting this in david milan's case we know that he's just had a run of maybe good fortune is the wrong way of putting it but good form good fortune good results at the international level but when you look at what he's done for franchises he's not the same player so it's very possible to have a uh, ben dunks another really good example of someone who for whatever reason his skills work very well in the pakistan league but they don't work particularly well in any other league that he's ever played in or international cricket or the big bash as um generally so i must look at it a bit. if if you if you show me a player who had good form in one particular league i would say okay well, they're quite good but why aren't they doing the same thing in other leagues and virat's case i think is is at least close enough to that that you would at least say not as fluky but that if he was that good a player why could he not do the exact same thing in the ipl and he hasn't played that many games um i'm assuming he's played a lot more ipl games than he has international games um which is probably the case for most players should i look that up i can look that up kind of right coley he's played about 100 internationals i think yeah I, i mean let's have a look he's played 90 internationals and another 200 domestic and he at a strike rate is 6 higher and his average is 10 higher i suppose i look at t20 in a completely different way that you have to be consistently good at it right across the board and so the league that he plays in is at least at, as strong as most international cricket and sometimes stronger than than international cricket so i'm not particularly worried about i'm not particularly interested in that uh but yeah i'm i mean i'd have to have a look at the numbers i don't know who else has had a, a great international record um that is similar to that but that's because i don't really look into it because that how often how often when someone plays an international t20 game outside of a world cup are they playing a full strength opposition Yeah, that's true. But again, you can make a case for him that he's done exceedingly well in the World Cup itself. Yeah, you're not wrong. But again, you're talking about in the World Cup, they're incredibly short seasons. Do you know what I mean? You're talking about less than ten games. It's that that's the problem here. I think that we have to start looking at it more the way that football probably looks at it, right? Which is we know that uh, Messi and Ronaldo are the two best players in the world, not because of what they have done at international tournaments, but what they do week in, week out. in against the best opposition that it comes up against them. And I think that in that case we know that Virat Kohli is not the best T20 player in the world. Um you know when Cricket Info did their best team of all time for me he didn't even come close to the best team of all time. Um there have certainly been better players than him over the course of T20 cricket so far. Does he have the best international numbers? P- possibly I'd have to look into that further um uh, 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 to be sure of that. But realistically I don't think that makes him the best T20 player and I'm more interested in who the I mean he's not the best T20 player in his own team is he so and we know that and we know that because both of them have been tested over and over and over again and we know that we would pick AB de Villiers over Virat Kohli unless yeah so the interesting thing about AB de Villiers is his numbers sort of go lopsided when it comes to international cricket so what Virat Kohli does in IPL other what AB de Villiers has done in T20 internationals so what do you think why is that I just think they're short seasons and you don't play that much and you play a handful of games and he probably doesn't always take them as seriously and maybe Vera has been taking them more seriously and might have something to do with you know oppositions and matchups and all sorts of things but 
I would look at their overall records rather than you know splitting it up in this particular way. Like, I, so when I look at T Twenty players, I ne- you know my first number is never their international record. There are countries where I might look at that, like you know associate nations. Sometimes you, you well, no, actually associate nations you generally don't. But um, Sri Lanka was one where it was better to look at a player's international record than it was their domestic record because so much of their domestic cricket was a really, really poor T20 competition. But as a general rule, you are you are looking for the overall numbers because that tells you their overall quality. It, there's a fluky... I suppose what I'm saying is that Darwin Milan has proved that there is a fluky nature of this. That's not to say that Barrett Coley is not an exceptional T20 international player, but when it comes down to it, I don't think that means he's a better player than A.B. De Villiers, even if he's performed better in a certain level of cricket more consistently, just because over the entirety of their careers, we've been able to see both of them up, up close. So um, I, I do get what you're saying. I just think that you, you play you play T20 internationals like in a three-game period more often than not, tacked onto something else. Opposition rests their opening bowlers. No, you know, it's at the end of the season. It's beginning of the season. It's halfway through a test series. You know, all those sorts of things. I just don't think you can really take international T20 numbers that seriously on their own unless they match up really, really closely with your domestic numbers. And in this case, he's averaging, what, 10 higher in international cricket than... um than he is in domestically. And off the top, I'm just having a look at this now. He seems to have a freakishly high not out rate. He's being he's not out more than um more than 25% of the time in international cricket. So that's why his average is that much higher. And his strike rate's not that much higher. Strike rate's only five or six points higher. Right? So yeah, yeah. no, it's not nine high. Oh, well, it's, I suppose it's not nine higher than his domestic. Well, his his overall strike rate is 133.57, right? Oh, all right. Oh. But that would factor in some of his international numbers. So, you know, again, he's had an abnormal amount of not outs in that record. But that doesn't change the fact that he is the highest run getter in the. No, no, it also doesn't change the fact that he's had th- had those not outs. But yeah, okay. Who's who's the number one ranked ICC T um, Twenty uh, player at the moment in batting? David Milan, but I don't. Who, who, no, no, no. Who's the number one T Twenty I ranked bowler? Uh, Shamsi. All right, neither of them are frontline IPL players. You can dominate international cricket, right, and not be the best player in the world. We have seen that again and again and again. If Virat Kohli was the, if well, I suppose what I'm trying to say, sorry, I'll let you, I'll let you uh, um, come in in a minute. But I suppose what I'm trying to say is, if he was the best international player in T20 cricket, I would expect him to also be the best T20 player in the world and he is not that and we we could both agree on that so if that's the case then there has to be a sense of randomness within the international scene and what has happened to him that doesn't mean he hasn't performed brilliantly for india that's a completely separate argument for me um and he might still be the best t20 international player in the world but here's the thing i don't give a shit if he's the best t20 international player in the world because he's not the best t20 player in the world that's what matters to me and and that's the randomness of the international numbers through shamsi and milan comes out there Right, we know that you can dominate international cricket and not be in the top. Well, in, in Milan's case, not be in the top what forty batters in the world, pro- most probably, or at least thirty batters in the world. Um, and in Shamsi's case, maybe not be in the not top twenty or twenty-five bowlers in the world. Right? That's not to say both of them aren't incredibly talented, and Vera isn't incredibly talented. It's to say that you can dominate uh, international cricket um, in T20 without actually being one of the world's best players. 
um, it, you can be slightly below that. So if that's the case, I'm, even if you're right with Virat Kohli, I kind of, it doesn't matter to me because it's not what I'm looking for when I'm trying to judge whether a player is good or not. All right, makes sense? Yeah, makes sense. Beautiful. Thanks, mate. Good question. All right, Pascal. Yeah, I'm good. Can you hear me? Yep. Quick question. Go. Yeah, so I wanted to talk about how the broadcast network will work in the future. You said that cricket.tv will come in. So my question was that how do you envisage in the future? Will it be a subscription-based market or advertising-based market? If it is a subscription-based market, whereas India is a very advertising-based market. So if cricket goes to the way of NBA.tv, how will they be monetizing it so that everybody can watch any game at any point? The best one I heard was Dan Norcross talk about this, where he said, why can't you have a Spotify version? Where with Spotify, you had the ability to have no ads if you want, and you can pay for your subscription and get whatever you want. Um, and then you also have the ability to just watch um, uh, games with ads on them. And you can you can kind of pick your poison at that point, right? That would be the best model for cricket, I would have thought. Um, it, it means that cricket would always be available to everyone, but on an advertising market. Um, and then for people like you and me, probably Basker, we would, you know, we want to sign into every single T20 league or international game or domestic league, whatever, and pay a premium for that and to get rid of the um, the ads about um, what moving money um, yeah, internationally. What else do you have? Uh, um, opening NRI um, bank uh, bank accounts um, and all those sorts of ads that you get if you watch cricket um, uh, these days. Uh, uh, so yeah, I, th- I would think those that would be the the, the easy way to handle what you've just said. Um, I think we're a long way away from worrying about that, sadly, because cricket's going nowhere with this idea. But yeah, that's what I would do. Cheers, mate. That's a very good question because you're right, and that's the thing with cricket. It you know, as I found as someone who trying to make money off it. Everyone has such a different market. So for instance, we're talk- you know, at the top of the show, I was talking about Patreon. You know, Patreon's been really good to me and it's helped us make this podcast, but it's not available to India at the moment or certainly Indians um, with certain kinds of bank accounts, however all that works. And it's like, great. So now I have to come up with an alternative to Patreon, even though I've invested time and money into Patreon. Unfortunately, that's just how these things work. Avi, quick question, go. Just news coming in right now that Four retentions will be allowed per IPL team. Oh. Which team do you think will actually go ahead with the option to retain four players and what fewer four players do you think it's going to be? Oh, I'm, I think there are plenty of teams will retain four players. Are you allowed to pick over, multiple overseas or is it one overseas? You know? I don't, I don't think there's an overseas restriction. It's just that you, you don't have RDMs anymore and two uncapped players. Oh, so you can do four major players and two others or is it two? But the thing okay. is that if you, if you do retain four players, you will have to spend 45% of your available force on those four players. Oh, wow. Well, this, well I can't answer your question because you have far more information because I've been on, on this uh, and, and missing out on all this. I would assume that Delhi will do it off the top of my head. I would assume that Mumbai, oh, Mumbai might do it. Chennai should do it. I think if I was the other teams, I'd be like, eh. Maybe Kolkata. If it's a, the problem is it's a big investment on players when it's a four-year cycle and Sun on and Andre Russell are wrong at age for a team like Kolkata would be my guess. Um, Bay and Chennai are pretty much like, I think all of us know what four players they're going to be, but like Delhi is what even I was confused into. Could you quickly yeah. tell us who do you think those four players in Delhi could be? Well, I think Delhi have, a, 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 you know, five or six options. So... 
Um, you know, I, I would keep uh, my, my three um, youngest top four players um, in a heartbeat, and I would pick, I would keep Akshar Patel or Avesh Khan um, as well, and I would build my core around those four players um, in that particular uh, in that particular case. So, so then you've got um, you know you've got Aya, um, you've got um, Prisvishor, you've got Punt as your as your top three slash top four. Um, players going forward and then you add either the all-rounder if you think Akshar Patel is going to play that role or if you think Avesh Khan is I, I mean you, I would say Avesh Khan probably had Avesh Khan had a better bowling year than Harshal Patel this year and he's younger and faster you know he's an incredible talent so they've got enough players there that they can they can bank on if they want and build their team around um, if it's me I'm not doing any international players outside of Rashid Khan because I think all the other international players that we're sure of are old, right? Even Maxwell's over 30, isn't he? I mean, he must be, what, 31, 32? So, you, you, I mean, you could make a punt on him, but don't forget, he'll be 36 then at the end of this cycle. How old will Faf be at the end of this cycle? How old will Andre Russell's knees be at the end of this cycle? 80, right? It's, so you have to, I think you have to factor in all of those things. Um, you know, Warner, Williamson, all these guys, they're not young. And we don't have, other than Rashid Khan, Moen, oh, well, even Moen's old, isn't he? Um, other than Rashid Khan and perhaps someone like Jason Holder, but I think it would be a big risk to anchor yourself to Jason Holder for four years, and, and I think he's a great player, um, but I think it would be a risk because he's not been a consistent T20 star. Are there many young international players that you are sure that it's going to be in your 11 for the next four years? If you're, as, if you, as you've said, you're going to have to use a big chunk of your money to retain them. It's very risky. So Delhi's in a really good situation because I think they can let a lot of their bowlers go if they want uh, and try and pick up a bunch of 90-mile-an-hour bowlers again um, and, and rebuild their team in a similar style but maybe with a slightly more all-round focus um, with an international player. But uh, interesting. I mean, until I, look at, uh, until I look at it more, I won't know. But thank you for your question. And Jimmy, I think you've got the last question, if you can come through. I get it. How you doing? Last question, fire. So, uh, I wanted to ask you about South Africa's chances in this T20 World Cup. Everyone's talking about England, India, and Pakistan, New Zealand. But no one's talking about South Africa. But I think they have a really good bowling lineup and one of the best in this tournament. So, we are tired on time. Yeah, no, I think, I think they do. I think the thing with South Africa, it's what they're not picking that is their problem, isn't it? We know that, that if you, you know, if you put well, if, if you had the ability to play Morris, Duplessis, um, De Villiers into this side, into here, um, you know, those, those are, those are for first, you know, uh, outside of Tahir, um, those are all first tier um, IPL players, overseas IPL players. Um, and even Tahir has been and probably could have been with another team this year. So I think it's probably more to do with that, but their batting is very, very worrisome. You're not, you're not wrong with their bowling. But their batting is worrisome. Have a look at Quinton de Kock's form for Mumbai. I wonder how many runs they're going to be able to score consistently to, you know, cause problems for other other teams. Um, I don't think anyone has a problem. Temba that is also very strange. I mean, Temba is a good one day and test player, but in T20s, I don't think he's a good T20 player. Look at the knock he played against Pakistan. You almost lost that game for South Africa. Yeah, I mean, I don't think he's... He's a blinder, otherwise that game was well. Yeah, I, I think they've got a lot of players like Temva who are 
good but not very good at T20 cricket. You know, all their best players are off in the free market because they can't afford to pay them, really. Look, I think they're an interesting team. I, I mean, if you look at them, uh, Sri Lanka, um, I'm trying to think. Even, weirdly, Bangladesh. Like, Bangladesh, if this tournament was being played in Australia or India, the two places that the next tournament was supposed to be played, Bangladesh would be a non-entity, right? But Bangladesh has suddenly stumbled across playing in the U in the UAE, which is probably the most like Bangladesh conditions that um, that they're going to have available. I think they're the two lowest scoring grounds um, when it comes to T Twenty cricket uh, as countries when it comes to T Twenty cricket um, of the major places over the last few years. So there's a lot of weird spoiler teams in this tournament. You know, West Indies haven't. You know, this we all think. Oh, you know, if you look at the individual players of the West Indies, they will just come together and they'll be great. They haven't assembled yet. Well, like, we, we don't know how they're going to play in this tournament. England, because of Owen Morgan's form, are still a risk. I think they're a stronger England team in some ways than they have been before. But we don't really know how England and West Indies, who were the, the very good teams before, um, Bangladesh, uh, sorry, Pakistan, obviously they have a combination of decent batting, slow batting, and explosive bowling. But they don't look like a full team either. You know, Australia are doing exactly what Australia all, always do. They're turning up without an all-rounder and hoping it all comes together. You don't need to see this No, not, not even a little bit. And, uh, you know, uh, hopefully I'll, I'll be able to get George Bailey on the podcast um, eventually and, and, and get to chat to him. But, you know, George Bailey does take T20 cricket very seriously and he's the chairman of selectors. And it's the first time they've really had someone who understands the game, who is good at the game, you know, played for Chennai and played in blast cricket and, uh, you know, Captain Hobart um, to you know, with, with some success. So they will think about it differently, but he's only just coming to the job and he's dealing with what they have. And, it, you know, um, I think he made some good decisions, actually. But as you said, they don't care about it. They haven't planned for it. So they've just turned up. Uh, I always say that, you know, they, they seem to turn up in every international tournament now, hoping that Mitchell Stark will win it for them, right? And it's like, well, good luck with that. But yeah, so, I mean, based on all that, there is no reason why Sri Lanka or South Africa can't catch fire, being the, the kind of talent that they have. The difference is that the England, Indian, and West Indian, and now Pakistani players, maybe less, slightly less so with England, but certainly with India, West Indies, and the Pakistani players, those guys just play a lot of T20 cricket. They play in good leagues. They know a lot about the game. And when it comes down to it, we know that experience plays a big part in winning World Cups. That is where I think those teams are going to have a big advantage over South Africa or in Sri Lanka or in, and some of the other um, uh, teams that we've mentioned there. Um, you know, uh, they know... The treatment that uh, the South African cricket board is doing with its senior players is also not right. The other day I saw a Twitter post by Cricket South Africa. <laughs> I was congratulating Lungi and Giri for winning that TSK but did not mention have the pretty intentional. And Dale Shin was really angry and also David Visay also responded to that post and then they had to delete it. I mean, there's a lot of yeah. I think. Look, I think we, we've seen, we saw a similar thing play out with the West Indies that we are now seeing with South Africa. And we'll continue to see it until the, the international cricket is fixed and working properly. You, you, you know, these players, they go and play for these other places because they have to for their money. And it causes problems with boards who are not good. The West Indies board was not good during that period, and that's why they didn't manage to keep their players. And South Africa's doing the exact same thing now. You know, I he, I saw the comments from the chairman of selectors the other day, and I get what he's saying, but you can't afford to pay A.B. de Villiers what other people can. If A.B. de Villiers comes to you and says, I'm only going to play in World Cups, 
and that's all I am available for. But when I get to that World Cup, I'm going to be in absolute peak physical condition and I'm going to have played the best leagues in the world. If you think I'm in your best five batters, pick me. If you don't think I'm in your best five batters, then obviously do not pick me. That might be a situation. Yeah, that, that might be a decision that teams have to make and we're not quite there yet. Um, more and more players are going to be able to do it this going forward. Right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, you, you have it in basketball. So, you know, the end of the NBA season, you have someone like Ben Simmons and you have someone like uh, Nikola Jokic who just say, look, we're too, we're too tired and we, we have to work on other things. We can't come and play in the Olympics now. And it's huge for the Australian team not to have a six foot eleven Ben Simmons playing for them. And for the Serbian team, it's the difference between them qualifying for the Olympics and, and having a chance of winning a uh, silver or, or bronze medal. You know, Jokic is, Jokic is that good, right? And it's the same thing. But at the same time, they have to, there are going to be years when they're going to be absolutely fit and raring to go for international basketball. They're going to be years when they're not. And, you know, football is in a position where at least the World Cup is so big. But are we going to get a similar thing now that there's going to be a World Cup every two years, right, in football? And I think um, international wide world cricket is taken way too seriously. It should be a friendly exactly. Exactly. I, I completely agree. So, the only so, so, World Cup, there should be preparation matches, but these are bilateral series that I think waste of time. Yeah. And so, so I think with all that in mind, and I think with all that in mind, selection committees are going to have to be smarter going ahead and cricket boards are going to have to be smarter going ahead. And they haven't worked that out yet. I think New Zealand was one that thought, has thought about this a little bit better. And look what New Zealand have managed to do. They've managed to keep their players happy and win internationally. So far, South Africa and West Indies were not able to do that, right? And I think that's going to be the magic thing going forward unless we can fix the structure of international cricket. And we're not going to fix the structure of international cricket um, because no one really wants to outside of us, the fans. So great question, Jimmy. Thank you very much. I think that is it for everyone today. Huge fan to everyone who came on Spotify Green Room. Remember, you can follow me on Spotify Green Room. We have these chats at least once a week. We might have to change up on Friday to another day because of producer Nick's schedule because he plays cricket and he might need me to change that for him. A big shout out to Manscaped. If you want to look after your balls, and it's always important, I have found, go to manscaped.com, put in the code REDINCA, which is the name of this podcast, no spaces, I think that's right, um, and you get a 20% discount and free worldwide shipping, and you can look after your testicles. A big thanks to Bodyline T-shirts, and also, obviously, that people on Patreon, and buy me a coffee if I've set that up by the time you've listened to this. You can watch this podcast on YouTube. It will also go up on the Red Inca feed, and thank you to everyone for asking questions today. Goodbye. Sports Social Podcast Network.